Well, friends, we're going to continue to walk through the book of 2 Timothy uh, that we've been in here for a bit. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open in them to 2 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 14 to 19 this morning. And, and as you're turning there, uh, I want you to just consider this phrase. Beware of unexploded artillery. Beware of unexploded artillery. Now, here's the place that I read that on a sign, and it was uh, on this backpacking trip that we did, that I did a number of years ago with a good friend of mine, uh, and, and this was on a sign with a little asterisk next to it, beware unexploded artillery. Now, let me tell you a little bit about this place. This is the Dolly Sods Wilderness. It's in West Virginia. It is, I think, I don't know, I, I went on the Ricketts Glen hike here a couple weeks ago, and that, that was a beautiful hike, but from a backpacking trip, uh, Ricketts Glen might be my, fav- my favorite east of the Mississippi. Uh, and part of the reason for that is it's so unique to what we would typically see here in the east. This is a, uh, it's the highest plateau east of the Mississippi. Uh, we went on the 4th of July weekend and, and it was 13 degrees hotter in the valley than it was when we got up to this plateau. And, and when you get up there, the vegetation and the animal life is, is more like Canada, right, uh, than it is any other part of the United States. And so uh, we would hike through cranberry bogs. We would hike through these Canadian pine stands. It was just absolutely breathtaking. And if you're wondering why on earth the unexploded artillery piece, right, that doesn't grow up there. Uh, it, it's uh, rather, uh, it, was a, it was a place where they would practice, target practice basically, for dropping bombs in the early part of the 20th century. And so in 1997, um, a group of people went out and, and they removed, I think it was like 14,000 uh, pieces of artillery. Some of them were unexploded. So when I was, um, you know, posting up the tent there, I was a little nervous, just to uh, be honest with you. But we made it. There was nothing that exploded. It told you to keep on the trail. And if you saw something, you know, just, you know, don't mess with the uh, mortar shells or the bombs that you come across, which is good for any place, right? So this, let's just pay attention to that. But, um, but but uh, this is one of my favorite pictures. I keep coming back to it. I love pictures of paths. I don't know why. It's just a thing uh, with me. And and you might look at that and be like, well, Anthony, no wonder that was one of your favorite hikes because that's a pretty easy path, right? There's no obstacles in the way. Uh, it's a piece of cake. Well, uh, once you get into those woods that it's headed towards, it changed pretty dramatically. Uh, this is a wilderness area, so they don't maintain the trails like they do on like the Appalachian Trail or uh, in some of the national parks. And so when we got into the woods, uh, what we found is a tropical storm had recently blown a bunch of trees over, and me and my buddy were standing there going, where's the trail? And so we, we looked around for an hour trying to find the trail. Uh, we were climbing trees, and we just couldn't find it. Uh, we had to backtrack, and at one point we went to, made it back to this juncture where we saw other hikers, and we're like, did you see the blowdown? Is that the way? And they're like, well, you can't go that way. you got to go this way. And we're looking at the map. We're like, you sure we go that way? And they're like, oh, yeah, positive. We got so lost. It was not the right way. They had no idea what they were talking about. And you can imagine as we're kind of creeping around off trail, I was terrified because I thought I was going to explode. That's an emotion I've never felt on a trail before, but uh, nevertheless, uh, that was the case. And uh, in that moment, here's, here's what I experienced. It was, I remember the feeling. Uh, I was standing there going, oh no, <laughs> we are totally lost. We are never going to get home. And in the moment, uh, I was the leader. You know, the, the guy I was with was a guy I was in a discipling relationship for four years. I was like, this will be a great, like, you know, opportunity to just hang out and spend time together. And I was a more experienced backpacker, and I was the one who scoped this place out. So I was the one who he was like, all right, what next, right? 
And I just had no clue. I was absolutely terrified. And, and as I thought about this passage this week, I thought to myself, this has to be how Timothy was probably feeling at this point in Paul's letter. Because remember what Paul had done. He had, he had discipled this young man, and he had said, okay, uh, I helped plant this church in Ephesus. I'm going to go plant other churches in other areas of the world, and you're going to continue to plant churches in this area. And we know from what we've studied that he is timid, right? And we know that he is young. And at that point, he was experiencing his own versions of, of, of kind of uh, blowdown and, and, and people who uh, were really bad guides, right? We haven't talked about this a whole lot, but there are false teachers in Ephesus where he's planting these churches who, who talked a little bit or just enough of the gospel to sound like Christianity, but then they would just swerve from the truth of the gospel. And they would begin to teach something just, just a little off. And it was devastating in Ephesus. He was also experiencing kind of those moments of unexploded artillery because remember, Paul's on death row writing this letter. Paul is likely being persecuted for his faith under Nero. And so Timothy knows that at any moment, it could turn on him as well. He could suffer dramatically for the sake of the gospel. He was facing crooked paths and blowdowns and and unexploded artillery, and he was probably terrified. Friends, a a prayer of mine as as we jumped into the book of 2 Timothy is that we don't approach this as saying, well, Timothy, he's a pastor, he's a church planner, I'm not that. Uh, Part of of, uh, my prayer has been that we would actually not see ministry as the work of the experts. My prayer has been that we as a church would begin to see ourselves as people who are called into ministry, just like Timothy, just like Paul, maybe not in the exact same functions, but Jesus himself, when he left his disciples, said, you now go and make disciples. And I believe that's something that uh, is borne out through the church and throughout his people, that, that the church is not a group of people in the stands watching the game, but a group who has been called to make disciples, to Ephesians 4, do the work of ministry that he's called us to. But friends, if you really embrace that, I guarantee you there will be a moment where you feel just like Timothy. We're living in a culture that doesn't necessarily make sense anymore to what it did 10 years ago when Christendom was, or 10 or 15 or 20, however long it was, where where Christendom was kind of the accepted uh, part of the culture, where the Ten Commandments was something that was regularly accepted. We're not there anymore. We are off that map. Many of us even talking after first service this morning are experiencing forms of persecution because we hold to the gospel and to scripture and how God calls us to live out our lives as human beings. We are facing more persecution. Is it the same as in places like Afghanistan? No, but the heat is turning up. So what do we do? What do we do as we find ourselves in these places? Because the reality is, is we are surrounded by challenges as we help others learn to love and follow Jesus, which is what I would call a working definition of discipleship. So what do we do? Here's the three things we're going to look at. I think what Paul is going to help Timothy see, and hopefully us, is where to head and what to avoid. That's the first thing. Two, we're going to look at two types of guides as we're on this trail or off the map. And then the third thing is confidence for the journey as we go. And so as we jump in, let me pray for us, and then we'll keep going. Lord, we need your help this morning. First of all, I pray that you make us a church that sees ourselves not as spectators in your work, but, Lord, as participants in 
your work of redemption. Father, that you would see us as people, even if we are the youngest of believers, called out for your purposes to to see other people grow to learn to love and follow Jesus, just like we're learning. Holy Spirit, would you use the words of Paul inspired by your Holy Spirit to encourage us as we feel like we're we're off the trail and we're trying to make sense of it. And, And Holy Spirit, just guide my words as we go and change our hearts through your word. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. All right, friends, so here's the first thing that we see Paul helping Timothy understand is, is where to head and what to avoid as he finds himself uh, kind of off the map. And, and we're going to look at verse 14, so read along with me. Here's what Paul says. For starters, he says, Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words which does no good but only ruins the hearers. All right, so the two things we're going to see, we're, go- we're going to see where to head is point others to the main thing. The second thing we're going to see is to stay away from what ruins. So let's talk about this picture of pointing others to the main thing. I'm going to leave that up here so you see it. But look at that first part. He says, remind them of these things. So up to this point, we've seen Paul just enter this mode of trying to encourage Timothy as he's been called to this work of discipleship and church planting. And I don't know if you've been paying attention, but whenever it says remind them of these things, we've got to go back and figure out what these things he's talking about. Listen to the main thing that Paul is pulling Timothy towards. And let me just say it simply. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here it is. I'll just read it. The very first verse in Paul's introduction, he, he says, I've come according to the promises of life that is in Christ Jesus. There's a promise of life in the gospel that he wants to remind Timothy of. First line of the book. Verse 7, God gave us not a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. The Holy Spirit is a part of the gift of the gospel that we simply receive. Timothy is scared and he's young and he doesn't know what to do. And he's saying, don't give in to that spirit of fear. Lean in to this spirit of power and of self-control. Verse 9, he said, he's called us to a holy calling, not because of our works. My guess is that Timothy's probably going to face some guilt and shame as he's sitting in quiet places listening to his own heart, just like we all do. Those accusations. And he says, he says, we've been called not according to our works, but according to his purpose and grace that he gave us in Christ Jesus. That's been shown through the appearance of Christ Jesus, our Savior. Verse, uh, chapter two, verse one. Timothy, be strengthened by that grace. Don't lose it. Keep remembering it. Verse eight, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. And I guarantee you that he's saying that because Timothy could lose his life for the sake of the gospel. And he's saying, remember Christ came so that you will have eternal life, even if this one goes away. So friends, in 30 some verses, do you hear how many times Paul says very clearly that remember the gospel, remember the gospel, remember the gospel. And then he changes gears here and says, okay, this is what ministry is going to start to look like. And guess where he tells Timothy to start? To remind them of these things. Remember the gospel and remind them of the gospel. So friends, our first step in the work of ministry and the work of discipling is to always point people to the gospel and the person and the work of Jesus Christ. You lose that, you lose the Christian mission. It's no longer Christian. Here's the second part. He says, okay, the very next thing he moves to is he says, charge them before God not to quarrel about words. It does no good and only ruins the hearers. Not that it does a little bit of good sometimes. No, it literally does no good. And not only does it do no good, it ruins the hearers. 
So we need to talk about what he means by quarreling about words. Well, literally, you can interpret that as word fights, right? He's saying word fights are, 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 are dangerous and destructive. If you dig into this term a little bit more, it can technically mean splitting hairs. Now, I know some of us are like, okay, see, it's really, you know, this deep theology thinking stuff, it's dangerous, it's bad. That's why we call seminary cemetery, right? That's where you go to die in your faith, right? That's, I've heard it, I've been to seminary, right? Is Paul really saying we don't need to think deeply about our faith? Is Paul really thinking it's not important to own the truths of the gospel in a deep way? Is Paul really saying the gospel doesn't really engage with culture in a deep way? No. And the reason I say that is if you just read some of his other writings, Romans 12, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Or here's another example in the book of Philippians. He's writing to this church in Philippi. He says, it is my prayer. This is Paul's prayer for the whole church while he's in prison again. That your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. He wants us to be thinkers as followers of Christ. He says the result of that, right, and this is important, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now here's what I can't do. And I wrestled with this deeply this week. I can't give you a line to say, here's where we've crossed a line into inappropriate hair splitting and and, and word fighting. I actually don't know where that line is. I don't. But there's something fascinating here that he gives us that's a little bit of a diagnostic where we can ask our hearts, hey, have I slipped into that place? Look at how he starts. It's his prayer that, that love may abound more and more. In our study of God's word and of doctrine? Are we growing and abounding more and more in love? If not, it might be a problem. Here's the other part. He says a result of this is going to be filled with the fruit of righteousness. Now, doing a little bit of digging, I think what he's pointing to here is the fruit of the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit isn't something that we generate. It comes, it says here, through Christ Jesus. Can we just have a little bit of a reminder of what the fruit of the Spirit is? Y'all are going to start singing the song in your heads if you know it. But, but it's love, it's joy, it's peace, it's patience, it's kindness, it's goodness, it's gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. I think I repeated one in there. I didn't sing the song just then. I'm sorry, I lost track. But did you hear those words? In 1 Timothy, the other letter that we have documented that Paul wrote to Timothy, we see an example of of Paul actually talking about the same idea of quarreling about words that, that is really the antithesis or the opposite of the fruit of the Spirit. He says, he says, these people have moved beyond the sound words of Christ Jesus. They're puffed up with conceit and understand nothing. They have an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words. Uh-oh. This produces envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicion. Friends, do we live in a day of evil suspicions almost constantly? Constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. When my kids were younger, we learned that there is a medical, uh, well, a diagnostic tool that is used to tell whether or not your, your child is growing at an appropriate rate, right? 
and, and it was an x-ray. It was an x-ray of a wrist. And they could take an x-ray of a wrist and go, hey, that, you know, they're, they're, they're growing at an appropriate rate, right? And so maybe we need to ask some x-ray questions as it pertains uh, to how we're approaching words, how we're approaching our knowledge, how we're approaching our faith. Here's the first one. Is our study of God's Word, is our splitting of hairs, which isn't in and of itself inappropriate, but is it causing us to fall deeper in love with Jesus and to look more like Him? We have to ask ourselves that question. How about this question? Is that study and how we're approaching it building in us the fruit of the Spirit or the fruit of dissension like we see in 1 Timothy 6? Ask ourselves those hard questions. The reason I say that is because it might reveal you're worshiping something other than Jesus. If it is dissension, that doesn't equal Jesus Christ. If we find ourselves sowing division, constantly in fights, we're probably worshiping something other than Jesus because we become what we worship. Always. Always. I know there's some people who are going to say, but Luke 12, Jesus said, I came to bring division right? Well, we've missed the, con- the context there. And, and the other thing, or, or, oh, Jesus flipped over tables because he's angry, right? And, and I would just say, yes, those things are very true about Jesus. But, but if that's what you take away about Jesus, if that's your perspective, I mean, you have not read the rest of the Gospels. You have just read Luke 12 and moved on. We see him move towards the broken in every sphere of life. We see him move towards the blind and have compassion on those who don't yet know him. We see him remarkably patient with the religious folks, and we see him on the cross saying, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We become what we worship. Do we look more like Jesus? Here's the next thing we need to look at. The second point is the two types of guides that we see here. There's two types of guides that we see uh, in this passage. So pick back up with me in 2.15. Oh, going back. I'm sorry, Tom. I messed you up back there. It's my bad. All right, here's 15. He says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightfully handling the word of truth. And so we're going to see the picture of two types of workers, or I would say two types of guide. The first one is going to be the straight shooters. The reason I say straight shooters is this, is um, as you look at it, we're going to get to what one approved by God looks like next week in, in the sermon, but, but I want to focus on the very end of verse 15 where he says, rightly handling the word of truth. The term that he uses there is orthotomeo. If you translated that literally, it would be a straight cut, right? Straight cut. Ortho means straight. That's the root. So parents who spend like a hundred million dollars on orthodontics, right? You want straight teeth, right? That's what the ortho is, right? Or orthopedics, right? Also orthodoxy. That's where that comes from. Orthodoxy is, is basically saying a belief that is straight. Now what straight actually means here is it's this picture of a straight path cut through the country, going from one point to the other. It's, it's straight without turning aside and without endless debate. And so, friends, one of the things that we have to wrestle with is, yes, there is a division of words and, and hair splitting that isn't helpful, but it doesn't mean that there isn't real truth that's offered to us in God's Word. That there is a path that He has laid out for us in His revelation of Himself and His will. That as we approach God's Word, we realize that He is the Creator and then we are the creation. 
And He is the only one who can reveal Himself to us. And He is also the one who can tell us how we're made and what brings Him glory. We can't get that from in here. We cannot get that from any human-made ideology. And so I want you to hear me say, even though there's an unhealthy quarreling of words that can happen, we do need to wrestle to follow that path where God's Word tells us what to believe about Him and what He requires of us. John Stott says this. He says, This type of person who rightfully handles the Word of truth handles the Word with such scrupulous care that he stays on the path himself, avoiding the highways and the byways, and makes it easy for others to follow. It's not like a chase scene in a Jason Bourne movie where he's running through a kitchen. Why do they always run through kitchens in those movies, right? But he's running. He's like pulling down all the stuff behind him and refrigerators and sliding. No, as we're walking alongside of others, even young in our faith, we're saying, follow me as I work to to walk the path that God has called us to in Scripture. Here's a second sort of guide. It's the one who misses the mark. It's the one who misses the mark, 16 to 18 Paul writes this, and this is different. You'll hear the word swerve, right? Which sounds a little bit different. But here's what he says. Avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They're upsetting the faith of some, but God's firm foundation stands. So let me... I'll stop there. I'm going to keep reading. But here's here's the idea of, of... there are some people who have veered off the path and they're missing the mark. And the reason I say miss the mark is where it says swerved. That's an archery term that literally means they've missed the mark. They've missed the bullseye that maybe uh, part of that path was going in the right direction. They've swerved off of it. And those little incremental deviations matter. Part of those deviations is verse 16, irreverent babble, which is essentially just empty talk. It's talk that's pointless or worthless. But verses 17 and 18 actually say there's, there's actually wrong teaching of God's Word. You know what these two guys are saying? Uh, uh, I, I keep goofing up these guys' names. Uh, Hymenaeus and Philetus. They, they were actually teaching that the bodily resurrection of the believer who have died in faith in Christ has already happened. And he's freaking the church in Ephesus out. They're like, uh-oh, we missed it, right? And Paul's saying that is evil. That is, that is wrong teaching that isn't just annoying, but it's gangrenous. You know what? gangrene really is. It's a sore that becomes infected and becomes septic, and it goes through our body, and it kills us. There is a danger in wrong doctrine, and it's something to take very seriously. Uh, We have a couple of pilot friends in here, and so I I think I've bounced this off of them enough uh, that I don't feel totally... Well, uh, anyway, I'm just going to say it to you. There's In aviation... There's this idea of the one in 60, uh, I don't know if it's a principle or law or rule or whatever it is, but, but basically as a pilot is flying, for every one degree that they're off course, in 60 miles they will be one mile away from their target. And then it exponentially gets broader as you go further and further, and it becomes ruinous. You're going in a totally opposite direction. And so, friends, as we approach God's Word, it is important for us to take take the teachings of it very seriously and to handle it with care. Now, I know there's some of us going, Anthony, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a young believer, I'm a new believer. Like, how do I handle God's Word with care? There's some crazy stuff in our Bibles, right? It's true. 
I will tell you my dream. My dream is to next fall have just the basics of how do we read Scripture together. So I, just pray for me that that happens. I've wanted it for like five years. But, but I would say in the interim, if you just had one tool that would be really helpful that's like just kind of entry level but can be as robust as you want it to be, get an ESV study Bible. If you don't believe in printed books anymore, like half of our culture like doesn't believe in printed books, you can go to Crossway Books and you can order the online version. Have it on your phone, have it on your computer. They have articles on how to observe and interpret and apply Scripture. Uh, when you get into some of the craziest sections, you can go, what does this mean? And look down and there's some good, reputable, and reliable sources to help you through it. I would also say the Gospel Coalition online, they have this new section called Essays uh, that really are are deeper thinking but still uh, accessible on some of the major doctrines of our faith. And so let me just point you to those two resources. But but let me just give you this. Can I I just give you fourth? I just have to go into teaching just a little bit as it comes to some some basic principles of, of interpretation. How can we just practice if maybe we've been at it for a while handling God's Word well? Well, here's four things I would just say. First of all, this idea that Scripture interprets Scripture. And so this is just the reminder that God has given us His revelation through His Word, and we can't interpret God, who He is, and what He's called us to do outside of His Word, right? We're not bringing in outside sources and holding God and His Word in judgment through those ideologies. We rather put those underneath God's Word and say, I don't get it, but I need to wrestle through it. Help me understand it. That's the first thing I would say. The second thing, I'm going to jump down to three, interpret obscure passages with clear passages. There's a lot of cults that have started off of some of the most unclear passages of Scripture, where we get to it and we're like, I don't know what this means, I think this is what this means, I'm going to go start a new religion based off of it, right? Maybe they do it accidentally, but that happens. And so what I would just say is the the obscure passages, we need to look and find the clear passages that speak to the same things and give those more weight, because God has been clearer in some areas than others. In scripture. Here's the second thing, or number two, but it's really the third. Literal sense. We do want to approach God's word literally. Now, interpretively, uh, there is some effort that often needs to be done in how we bring something that might be a 3,000 year old document uh, into our current and modern context. And I would say the reason the term sense is there is because sometimes we'll approach, by the way, if you ever approach poetry, which is a part of the Bible, like a science book, you're in trouble, right? And so we need to approach it with the literal sense based upon whatever genre of Bible or or of uh, literature that we're being faced with. And here's the fourth one, is as you study, Jesus himself has said that the aim of everything that we find in Scripture is pointed to Jesus Christ. And so if we get anywhere else in our deep study of Scripture, we've actually lost um, the mark, right? Jesus says it in Luke 24 and in John chapter 5. And so, anyway, there's just some take-home things that maybe you can wrestle with. This is going to be online if uh, you didn't capture it, you want to go back and, and, and look at it. So just go to our website, click on the sermon, the slides will be there. But here's the third and final point, is this idea of, okay, what's our confidence for the journey? And actually, when I had that moment of terror on uh, the trail, uh, it, it went away relatively quickly, um, because as, um, as I was standing there going, What's going to happen? What do we do? Um, here, can I pray real quick?